last week, of elders is to preach and teach the word. I'm Wes, I'm an elder here, and I'm here to preach and teach the word. Um, That might sound simple, but there's a lot going on behind that. We talked a lot last week about leadership and eldership and shepherd elders, and we'll get a little bit of that today. But it's worth noting, I just like to do this from time to time because it's fun to shower praise on people. There are many churches in America where the pastor is the head of the pyramid. They are the sole person in charge. They run the elder teams. They do everything, and we don't believe that's biblical, and we talked about that last week. But there's a lot of men also that are very jealous about this space. They don't really want other people to stand up here, I guess, out of maybe self-confidence fears that, oh, they might like somebody else better. Uh, But Gary uh, is not like that. Gary's back on vacation, and yet Gary still feels that I have something to say and wants me to continue saying that. And he's not worried about that. Gary shares this pulpit with the board, with the team, with the men that have been trained by Gary and by others and by this church to preach and teach. And that is normal here. Uh, Not that normal necessarily in churches in America. And I think it speaks to Gary's character. It speaks to Gary's devotion to the Word because that's what we believe the Word lays out pretty clearly. And I think it also says a lot about all of you. I'm not here because I'm smart. I'm not here because I am holy. I'm here because I joined this church a long time ago, and all of you have taught me. Uh, Some, like Gary, a lot. Uh, Some, it's very subtle things, but I'm a product of you. And we're all a product of what God's done with one of us, and I think we all can look back on who we were before and who we are now and give praise to him about what's going on today. So that's a little plug for Gary and that uh, we have something going on that's, I think, pretty special in this church. Let's talk about something different, though. Let's talk about something ugly. One of the ugliest words out there is hypocrisy. It's a very common word to be thrown around in an age where information is at our fingertips. It's easy to catch people in hypocrisy. But it's not without its amusement sometimes. This is John Lennon. John Lennon wrote... Give peace a chance. All you need is love. John Lennon was basically the soundtrack to the anti-war movement and the peace movement throughout the 60s and early 70s. You may not know this, but John Lennon was also a supporter, both financially and verbally, of the Irish Republican Army, which is a terrorist outfit that was known for setting up car bombs, kneecapping people, and committing dozens and dozens and dozens of murders in Northern Ireland. This is Thomas Jefferson, who wrote what I think is the most important document in American history. He wrote, all men are created equal, and he owns slaves. This is Sting, one of my favorite artists, tremendous singer, tremendous writer, used to be a member of a group called The Police. He is a major environmentalist activist now. He travels around the world rallying people to not waste gas and to be environmentally conscious, and he does that by flying a private plane, the most least environmentally way to travel around the world. This is Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich called himself a family values Republican. Newt Gingrich was very instrumental in criticizing President Clinton when President Clinton had an affair in the Oval Office. Newt Gingrich is on his third marriage and has had many, many affairs, apparently. This is Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton was the vocal face of a group called Vote or Die in 2004 
that while it was registering people to vote, was also directly going after President Bush at the time. Paris Hilton hasn't registered to vote. This is PETA. They are, I guess you call them animal activists, um, extreme activists. They've got a long list of interesting things they've done. But my favorite was they went to a mink farm in England where they had eight or 9,000 minks where they grow them for fur, and they set them all free. They, minks, got loose, killed thousands of songbirds, small dogs, cats, owls, hawk nests, and the ones that weren't shot by farmers trying to protect their own crops were run over on a major highway. Of the 8,000, they estimate that all 8,000 were killed due to being freed by PETA. Now, some hypocrisies aren't so funny. These are leaders of large churches. You may or may not recognize them. Ted Haggard, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, Bill Gothard, Mark Driscoll, Bob Coy, Cardinal Bernard Law. These are men that have been involved in hypocrisy that has harmed the church and has harmed dozens of people and will continue to cause harm for perhaps a generation to come. They didn't hold fast to the word, and they caused damage. And what's important about this, as we're going to talk about today as we look at Titus 2, is the word is at our core, but the watching world that is not Christian, they don't, they don't have the word. They have our actions. And our actions are, are watched by people, and the world watches what we do, not just what we say. And part of the, the belief we want is we want to be consistent. Abraham Lincoln said, I don't care for man's religion unless it has, or excuse me, I care not for man's religion whose dog and cat are not better for it. Which is an amusing way of saying it, your religion should influence your actions. And it's probably a good way to judge people by how they treat animals too. Jesus said it really well in Matthew chapter 7. He talked about the speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own eye. Don't be hypocritical. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The book of Titus has a lot to say about hypocrisy without using the word hypocrisy, but the idea is that we want to be consistent with our actions with what we believe. How we live is really important. So, we want to dig into Titus chapter 2 today and take a look at it. And if you're taking notes, this would be a good time to take them. But we start with always a central question. What is the question that we want to answer from this chapter? And this one Paul lays out, how are we supposed to live as Christians? And the answer is, as we'll dig in, sensibly and consistent with the faith. So this is the midpoint of the book of Titus and the midpoint of everything we're studying. And... This is a survey of Titus. We're not going verse by verse, but we're taking a look at the chapter for one day, and we'll dig into one little spot and kind of post hole an interesting term or one concept or one word uh, to take a look at it. always like to set context, though. So real quick, this will be a review for you. Titus has three chapters and essentially has three themes. And because I like alliteration, they're the buddy, the body, or the body, then the buddy, and the ball game, meaning Titus talks about the church, the body, he talks about partnerships in ministry and about how things are worked out with different groups, the buddy. 
And then the ball game, which is what we're talking about mostly today, which is, as Christians, we're kind of like ball players. We want to be involved in the ball game. Get off the bench, get in the game. Uh, Titus was written by the Apostle Paul. It was sent to Titus, who was in Crete. Titus is an important leader. Crete was a pretty rough beat. That was not an easy place to be a Christian and be a, a church leader, uh, kind of like America. Very focused on comfort, uh, not real encouraging towards God. Um, these are things that Crete was kind of known for. The key verse, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching so that he would be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The last couple of weeks, we've discussed relevancy a little bit. We talked about the high standards for leadership. We talked about partnerships and ministry. We talked about how elders can kind of be divided into board elders, which are very into political authority and kind of function like a government, or the biblical model, which is shepherding elders, elders that are close to the flock, elders that do their work out in the ministries, and it functions in plurality, not with authority. We talked about partnerships and how we see today that Titus wrote, Paul wrote to Titus. We also see where Paul, from Ephrata, is in Macau and in China sharing and encouraging, doing the same work that Paul and Titus were about. Paul Mayhew is about in China, Macau, and Hong Kong today, and it's very relevant, the book, as we go through things. Today we come to chapter 2, where some serious meddling in our lives will take place. Chapter 2 can be divided pretty simply in the structure. There's one part on kind of duties we have as Christians, and then the second paragraph is about why. Because Paul's great that way. When Paul writes, he'll tell you something important, and he'll tell you why. And he'll be specific, which, for me, not the smartest guy out there, is very, very helpful for me. So, duties as Christians, how we should behave, and then why. Why should we behave that way? And so if we, we dig into it, and you start looking at it, there's some instructions right off the bat. And I like charts. So you can kind of divide up the structure of the first part, the instructions for how to live as Christians, into kind of five little parts. So you've got men and women, and then old and young, and then there's a separate section on slaves. So right off the bat, you say to yourself, oh, apparently the younger women in Crete were doing okay. They didn't have any corrections they needed. So younger women you might think you're off the hook today. No, that's, you won't find that to be the case. But it's got a lot of really interesting things here that you can kind of observe. And there's, there's some stuff about not drinking too much, not being addicted, about being sensible. Shows up a couple times. But Paul divides it up. And you look at that and you can kind of figure that apparently in Crete there were some serious problems. These are specific to what was going on in churches in Crete. They had some drinking that was apparently more than just a little bit. They had some gossip. They had some people who weren't being very reverent that weren't acting on their beliefs consistently. And so Paul, kind of, he's calling them out on that. And he's telling Titus, these are things you need to remind these people of. There's some repeated phrases that are important in there. And they're worth taking a look at. We're going to kind of cover that very quickly. But what Paul might be saying, if we're going to summarize that, is don't be a hypocrite. Don't say you believe this, but do these other things, because that's not good for the church. And Paul explains why we should be about these things. Why should we hold fast in our actions with our beliefs? 
And he puts it like that. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We should speak well. Why? Because God has saved us. God saved the Cretans. God saved you and I. Our actions should reflect that. Why? Because God saved us. Because God saved the Cretans. Because God saved you and I. So act like it. So that's what it says in chapter 2. What does it mean? Oh, well. That's a little different. That's a fair question. Let's start with this. If this is what it says, and this is what's in there, what does it mean to us, and is it applicable to us? Because you might be sitting there saying, okay, A, I'm a younger woman. doesn't say anything about younger women. You might say to yourself, I'm not living in Crete in 64 AD. Does this apply or not? And that's a good question. I would tell you this. Yes, it does. Here's why. I'll give you four reasons. First off, it was written to Christians. If you're here and you're a Christian, right there. It's written to Christians. I'm a Christian. I've got to listen to this very carefully. Uh, we'll talk a little bit. It says all men, and we'll break that down, but that applies to all of us. Secondly, we live in a similar culture to what they had in Crete. Crete was not conducive to being a believer. We in America live in a culture that is not conducive to being a Christian, not in the sense that we're oppressed by any means, but in the sense of we're distracted. There's a lot of things to take our attention away from God, and that is a form of, it's, it's not conducive to it. Third reason is Paul wrote this under the influence of the Holy Spirit almost 2,000 years ago, and for 2,000 years, scholars, men and women of God, have poured over this, considered it carefully, and have said, this belongs in the official Bible. This is in canon. And while you and I might think, well, I don't know these people, but a lot of Christians have taken a lot of time and thought to say, this is important. This needs to be in there. It's relevant to you. And then it says so, the fourth reason is, it talks about the present age. That means now, too. And I'll break that down just a little bit. So there's four reasons why we should, this is relevant to us. Now, let's take a look at that. How do we apply this? When you read that, does that mean you should instantly say, well, I need to make sure that I'm responsible, sensible, not addicted to wine, not gossiping? Well, those aren't bad things, are they? I mean, those are pretty good ways to live. There's nothing wrong with it per se at all. In fact, it's, I think, very good advice. However, should we follow it legally, legalistically, as in you have to, to be a good Christian? And that's one option. There are many, many churches teach that. There are many, many religions that believe that. You follow this. If you do these things, you're going to be good. If you don't do these things, you're bad. And sometimes it turns into, and if you're not doing those things over there, you're bad, and I can say I'm good because you're bad. That speaks to our flesh. We like that. I mean, that's a good feeling, isn't it? Man, I'm righteous, and those guys aren't. And I can make fun of them. I can look down on them. And that is very fleshly. That's very sinful. That is, it appeals to us because it's a religion. It's not a relationship. The faith that we believe with Jesus Christ is a lot more complex than that. 
The Holy Spirit is a unique relationship with each one of us as Christians. And if you depend on the rules, where is your faith? Your faith would be in the rules. If we believe that we are saved because we act a certain way, that means we're in charge of our own salvation, and it wasn't God. And so if you want to go back and look at the entirety of, say, Book of Galatians, Chapter 5 of Romans, John 3, you'll find that the Bible does not teach that you're saved by doing things a certain way. And so doing things may be good, but it's not a part of your salvation. And this might seem like we're retreading old ground here, but I think it's worth ground worth retreading. How are you saved? Why are you saved? What is the process by which you were saved? Is it following rules or is it by faith? And I'll take you to Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. If I do certain things to be saved, then me, Wes, is in charge of my salvation. It wasn't God at all. That makes me feel pretty good, but if Wes is in charge, Wes is going to muck that up pretty soon. That means... I've lost my salvation. Boy, that doesn't seem to go make sense with the Bible. Since we're talking about salvation, probably need to talk about this. We talk about being saved. I'm on this side of the room now. What's the word I'm going to use? Justified. There's three parts of our salvation, and it's in time. We're justified when we believe, and that's when we're saved from the penalty of sin. Once you believe, In God, John 3.16, you believe, you're saved. You are safe. Your salvation is assured, but you're saved from the penalty. But in life, as we move through daily life, we have this middle phase, which is where most of us live, called sanctification, which is where we're being saved, daily basis, ongoing, from the power of sin. Yesterday... I was probably, on some level, more likely to sin than I am today, I hope. And tomorrow, I hope I sin even less than I did today. Progressively getting closer to God. Being more like Jesus Christ. Does that take your whole life to get better at? Yeah. But hopefully we can look back and say, wow, I've made some progress. And hopefully I can look forward and say, but boy, I've got a long ways to go. Someday, we'll be glorified will be saved from the presence of sin. There will be no sin. The only sign of sin that we'll see in heaven are wounds on the hands and the side of Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about do these things or don't do these things, he's not talking about for your justification. He's talking about your sanctification. You believe and you're saved. You do these things because it helps you be more godlike. You'll have a nicer life. You'll witness better. You will enjoy yourself more. People will see what you do and be more led towards God because you're living consistently. It's sanctification. So we don't want to confuse, do these things, oh, you're, you're going to go to hell if you gossip. No. That was justification. Paul's talking to churches, Christians, sanctification. So the rules, if you want to think of them that way, are guidelines to live a more godly life. They're not ways to get to heaven. Otherwise, it would be you and I that can earn our way to heaven. And 
our egos probably like that idea that we could earn our way to heaven. But then if we screw up, what happens? If that's what we believe, you're out. And the thing is, the Bible teaches very clearly, when you're saved, you're saved. God does the justification. God's power is stronger than you. We can't unearn what God has done for us. God paid the price. You are permanently saved. You are eternally saved. And there's nothing that you can do. There is no sin that you commit once you're a Christian that will take away the promise that you will live forever with Jesus Christ. And that is a fact that should change how we act. When he says, for salvation has come to all mankind, that's what he means. Can't, get it, can't lose it. Now, a couple terms. We look at this, for the grace of God has appeared. Two words I want to take a look at. One is all men, and the other is for this present age. Because I really want to hammer home that this book is relevant to you. First off, real quickly, the Bible was written a long time ago. It was written by people we don't know. It was written in a different culture. It was written in a different language. There are rules for how to figure out what was said and what it means. That's a whole study. It's got a really cool name. But there's only one interpretation to the Bible, and that's what God and the author meant. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's just your opinion, man, and there's lots of interpretations. No, there's rules to it. What Paul wrote, he used specific words, and you can find out what those words were and what did that mean in that culture at that time. And so we try to dig in a little bit, and it takes a little bit of work, but it's there. And when he said all men, he didn't mean males. The word he used in that culture defined at that time meant everybody, men and women, humans, not just Jews, not everybody, which again is that relevancy thing. And the second one is in the present age. Now, some of your translations don't put that in there because for whatever reason, they believe it's misleading or it makes you think that, oh, that just meant to the people in Crete. But the actual translation of that phrase is one word, means henceforth and continuing. Meaning it still applies to us today. We're part of humankind and we're in this present age, the church age, the time between when Christ came and when the church was established in Acts and when he will come back for us at the second coming. So, let's look at this list again. This list is very specific to people in Crete. Okay? Can we get some principles out of this list to help us live? Because you might say, well, I, you know, does it make sense? It, I think these are good things. But I think there's more importantly some principles to look at. And if we look at this, Paul kind of lists these nice summary principles, and there's three. Okay, if you want to summarize that whole list, eh, I'm not really into rules and lists. However, some principles to live by, live sensibly. Live righteously. Live godly. Sensible, righteous, godly. Sensible, righteous, godly. We're ball players on a ball team. You know, that's the ball game theme of Titus. Ball players should be sensible, righteous, and godly. That's how we get off the bench. That's how we do things as Christians. Which brings us to the end. 
of this chapter. And the question, well, so what? What difference does this make? That's interesting. Book written a long time ago. Applies to us, sure. But what about, what what does that mean to my life? And application, what do we do with this? Is about the relationship between you and God. You hear me say this a lot. That's something you're supposed to wrestle with and that I've had to wrestle with. An application of what does it mean to live righteously It might be different for you than it is for me because you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that's different than the relationship I have with the Holy Spirit. That's the fun part, I think, of the Christian world. This is not one way to do things. There's one interpretation of the Bible, but the application is as infinite as there are people. What living righteously to you might be different than me. You might read this and say, well, you know, to live righteously, I need to, I think I should abstain from meat. Whereas I might say to myself, to live righteously, I should serve meat. Glorious, dry rubbed, succulent, smoked meat, as often as possible. That's living godly to me. That's showing hospitality. We all have a different way of doing it, and that's great. That's, I think, the fun of being in a church. The problem is, don't make your application, the right one, right? So if you choose to live without meat, I don't get that. But I have to respect that. That's your relationship to the Holy Spirit. And you should respect my interpretation or my application of what that means. And that's important. The Word of God given to us, there's a meaning There's a specificity to what the author, what the Holy Spirit meant. One word, one interpretation, many applications. And you kind of have to figure that out for yourself. When you read it, you study it, you reflect on it, pray for a minute, and then ask, so what? What does it mean to you? What does it mean in your life? If we hold fast to the principles outlined in the word, we may still be accused of hypocrisy. It's too easy. And the fact is, we all screw it up all the time, right? I mean, if I don't have three sins before breakfast, it's a good day. But if we hold fast, the hypocrisy accusation will stick. Our actions will show us what we believe. And if we think about that, that's a way to help us reach more people for Christ. That's a way to show through how you live that you're a ball player on a specific team, God's team. Our actions should be influenced by what we believe. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this morning as we uh, are here gathered on the west coast of America. We know that worship has taken place, if churches worship on Sundays, all around the planet. We're kind of the last group on the planet to do this. And Father, that's a great sense of knowing that we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves that your church goes beyond the geographic boundaries that we know, goes beyond the times that we know. And that, Father, we recognize that the blessing from you of a peaceful nation that doesn't persecute us, the blessing of a, a nice building and comfortable chairs, they're from you. And many, many churches don't enjoy that. And we thank you for them. Father, we pray that your word today, as we've looked at it, the miraculous event of the interaction between your, the, the words on the page 
and your Holy Spirit in our hearts would be one that we leave here, Father, much closer to you than we were when we came in. We thank you for your word, that we can read it and understand it in our own language, that we can all have that relationship with you and that we don't need to go through somebody to tell us what it all means. Father, we thank you for this time where we can now go from a time of learning from your word and time of reflecting on it and worshiping you. And Father, I pray that by your spirit, we would sing to you, that we would worship you with our hearts in a way that reflects the love that you've shown us and the truth that your word has revealed to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.